We continue to listen for God's Word. Now, in previous months, I've been asking you to bring your own Bible with you and follow along and make notes uh, in it uh, when you're in worship. I'm asking you not to do that this morning. You will go crazy if you try to follow along with what I'm going to read because I'm selecting verses uh, in, from the fourth chapter of 1 Kings, the ninth, 11th, and uh, the ninth, 10th, and 11th chapters as well, just to give you an overview, if you will, uh, of the reign of King Solomon. So let us listen for the Word of God, and I'll be reading into today's English version, a more contemporary rendering of the Scriptures. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the grains on the sand of the seashore. They ate and they drank. They were happy. Solomon's kingdom included all of the nations from the Euphrates River to Philistia and to the Egyptian border. They paid him taxes and were subject to him all of their lives. All the kings of the west of the Euphrates were subject to Solomon, and he was at peace with all of his neighboring countries. As long as he lived, the people throughout Judah and Israel lived in safety, each family with its own grapevines and its fig trees. God gave Solomon unusual wisdom and insight and knowledge too great to be measured. Solomon was wiser than the wise men of the east or the wise men of Egypt. He was the wisest of all men. His fame spread throughout his, the neighboring countries. He composed 3,000 proverbs and more than 1,000 songs. He spoke of trees and plants, from the Lebanon cedars to the hyssop that grows on the walls. He talked about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. Kings all over the world heard of his wisdom and sent people to listen to him. The next chapters go on to describe his amazing construction of both the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion and his own palace, a gorgeous palace, and then the dedication of that temple in a grand prayer. And then picking up at chapter 9, in chapter 9. After King Solomon had finished building the temple and the palace and everything else he wanted to build, the Lord appeared to him again as he had in Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer. I consecrate this temple which you have built as a place where I shall be worshipped forever. I will watch over it and protect it for all time. If you will serve me in honesty and integrity as your father David did, and if you obey my laws and do everything I have commanded you, I will keep the promise I made to your father David when I told him that Israel would always be ruled by his descendants. But... If you or your descendants stop following me, disobey the laws or commands I've given you, and worship other gods, then I will remove my people Israel from the land that I have given them. I will also abandon this temple which I have consecrated as a place where I am to be worshipped. People everywhere will ridicule Israel and treat her with contempt. This temple will become a pile of ruins, and everyone who passes by will be shocked and amazed. Why did the Lord do this to this land and this people and this temple? They will ask that, and people will answer, It is because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt. They gave, them allegiance, they gave their allegiance to other gods and worshipped them, and that is why the Lord has brought this disaster on them goes on then to t describe all of the achievements and accomplishments of Solomon. We read this. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ebion Gezer, which is near Elat on the shore of the Gulf of Aqaba in the land of Edom. King Hiram sent some experienced seamen from his fleet to serve with Solomon's men. 
They sailed to the land of Ophir and brought back to Solomon almost 16 tons of gold. The queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame and she traveled to Jerusalem to test him with difficult questions. She brought with her a large group of attendants as well as camels loaded with spices, jewels, and a large amount of gold. When she and Solomon met, she asked him all the questions that she could think of. He answered all of them. There was nothing too difficult for him to explain. The queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's wisdom and saw the palace that he had built. She saw the food that was served at his table, the living quarters for his officials, the organization of his palace staff, and the uniforms they wore, the servants who waited on him at feast and the sacrifices he offered in the temple. It left her breathless and amazed. She said to King Solomon, what I heard in my own country about you and your wisdom is true, but I couldn't believe it until I had come and seen it for myself. But I didn't hear half of it. Your wisdom and wealth are much greater than what I was told. How fortunate are your wives, how fortunate your servants who are always in your presence and privileged to hear your wise sayings. Praise the Lord your God. He has shown you how pleased he is with you by making you king of Israel. Because his love for Israel is eternal, he has made you their king so that you can maintain law and justice. She presented to King Solomon the gifts she had brought, almost five tons of gold and a very large amount of spices and jewels. The amount of spices she gave him was by far the greatest he ever received at any time. Every year, King Solomon received over 25 tons of gold, in addition to the taxes paid by the merchants, the profits from trade and tribute paid by the Arabian kings and the governors of the Israelite districts. He also had a large throne made, part of it covered with ivory and the rest covered with the finest of gold. The throne had six steps leading up to it, with the figure of a lion on, each of, on the end of each step, a total of 12 lions. At the back of the throne was a figure of a bull's head, and beside each of the two armrests was the figure of a lion. No throne like it had ever existed in any other kingdom. All of Solomon's drinking cups were made of gold, and all the utensils in the hall of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. No silver was used since it was not considered valuable in Solomon's day. He had a fleet of ocean-going ships sailing with Hiram's Every three years, his fleet would return, bringing him gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. King Solomon was richer and wiser than any other king, and the whole world wanted to come and listen to the wisdom that God had given him. Everyone who came brought him a gift, articles of silver, gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. This continued year after year. Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides the daughter of the king of Egypt, he married Hittite women and women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, and Sidon. He married them even though the Lord had commanded the Israelites not to intermarry with these people because they would cause the Israelites to give their loyalty to other gods. Solomon married 700 princesses and also had 300 concubines. They, were made, they made him turn away from God. And by the time he was old, they had led him into the worship of foreign gods. He was not faithful to the Lord, his God, as was his father David. He worshipped Astarte, the goddess of Sidon, and Moloch, the disgusting god of Ammon. He sinned against the Lord and was not true to him as his father David had been. 
On the mountain east of Jerusalem, he built a place to worship Chemos, the disgusting god of Moab, and a place to worship Molech, the disgusting god of Ammon. He also built high places of worship where his foreign wives could burn incense and offer sacrifices to their gods. Even though the Lord, the God of Israel, had appeared to Solomon twice and had commanded him not to worship foreign gods, Solomon did not obey the Lord but turned away from him. So the Lord was angry with Solomon and said to him, Because you have deliberately broken your covenant with me and disobeyed my commands, I promise that I will take the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your officials. However, for the sake of your father David, I will not do this in your lifetime. I will not take the whole kingdom away from him. Instead, I will leave him one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have made my own. Here ends the reading of God's word from 1 Kings. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You saw that title, Ivory Apes and Peacocks, and you're thinking to yourself, well, our rental rev must have gone over the edge this week. <laughs> Come up a couple of casseroles short of a potluck. <laughs> Some of you know that I just have a penchant for unusual uh, sermon titles, if I can think of one. But uh, none of those really explains the title of today's sermon or the content of the sermon because I assure you, assure you it is very biblical. If you listen carefully to the reading of Scripture, you will recognize the source of it. And I think it's very relevant to our life and times as well. The idea for the sermon was not mine originally. I was reading a great book several years ago by Dr. George M. Doherty. I've seen the day. It was uh, about his life as a pastor. He was the Scottish minister who succeeded Peter Marshall at the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. And his ministry was conducted there uh, in the midst of everything that was happening in the country and in D.C. Uh, the civil rights struggle, uh, Vietnam, the Watergate trials. Uh, he was involved in some way in, in all of that. But he said in that book something that I made a note of. He said, someday I want to write a sermon entitled Ivory Apes and Peacocks and use it to focus on the sad but profound lessons we can learn from the life and reign of King Solomon. I don't know if Dr. Doherty ever got around to writing or preaching that sermon, but I thank him for the suggestion nonetheless because Ever since then, it's, it's stuck in my mind as something I would like to do. Ivory Apes and Peacocks simply reminds us of the untold blessings that God in his mercy had given to Solomon during his reign. But these words can also be metaphors for us in our time to help us understand and appreciate and recognize perhaps the extent of God's blessings that he has directed our way as individuals, as families, as a nation, a community, as members of this congregation. Unquestionably, Solomon was blessed by the Lord beyond what anyone could have imagined or hoped for. And today's lesson, despite its length, just touches on some of the benefits and blessings that had come Solomon's way. Here, to be sure, was a man who had it all, as we like to say. 
If we wanted to select one character from history who had it all, as we often conceive of all, it might well be Solomon. He was given the thing that he most desired, that single thing, because when God appeared to him in a dream and said he would give him anything he requested, Solomon requested wisdom. Wisdom to rightly rule the people of God. And God was so pleased with this choice that he says to Solomon, I will do what you have asked. I will give you more wisdom and understanding than anyone who has ever lived or will ever live again. And so great was his wisdom and his renown that people like the Queen of Sheba and other rulers around the world at that time would go to Jerusalem to visit Solomon just to sit at his feet at marvel at what he knew, what he had accomplished, and what he had accumulated as well. And what is more, God was so pleased with this lone request and this humble request that he decided that he would give Solomon also everything else that he might have asked for but didn't. He was given fame that spread far and wide. He was given the love and the devotion of his subjects in Israel and Judah. He had the respect of his royal peers throughout that part of the world. He enjoyed the affection and the friendship and companionship of his God. And not just the affection and friendship of his God, but he had the pleasures of 700 spouses, we might say, and 300 concubines. Under Solomon, Israel was at the peak of her military power at that time, in those days. The zenith of her wealth And she was at the extent of her geographical borders, so much so that even the state of Israel today still thinks that the land they should be controlling is the extent of the realm under Solomon where it was most expansive. And he had these ships that would come periodically, bringing him treasures from all over the world. Hard to imagine all of this. Gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. The gold and silver, you probably understand, just extraordinary wealth that he controlled and enjoyed and the ivory well if you listen carefully to the reading this morning one of the uses for the ivory was he fashioned the most incredibly beautiful royal throne that had ever been fashioned covered with ivory and pure gold but what about the apes and peacocks Well, Jerusalem back in ancient times uh, didn't have movie theaters or television or theme parks or golf courses. And one of the greatest sources of amusement and entertainment in ancient times was apes, baboons brought from Africa or other places and put behind fences to entertain and amuse people. It was a great source of entertainment in that day. Not only for uh, Solomon, but for his wives and concubines, his officials, and even his subjects. This was considered the height of luxurious entertainment. And peacocks. Peacocks were prized for their iridescent and vibrant beauty in a part of the world that's desperately lacking in color and beauty. If there had been a Neiman Marcus back in Solomon's day, and if they'd had a Christmas catalog that featured extraordinary, exotic, and very pricey gifts for the person who had everything, then the catalog during Solomon's reign might have had an ape or a peacock on the cover. He had it all, no doubt about it. The Lord, in his mercy, had blessed Solomon beyond belief. All that one could hope for, 
even ivory apes and peacocks. And friends, I would suggest to you this morning that this congregation and a majority of our members have it all as well in terms of looking at the situation within the world. We live in a wonderful community. We have blessings that abound on every hand. And yet, perhaps we need to be warned, as God warned Solomon, that if we forget the source of our blessings, if our blessings turn our hearts away from God, if they prove to be a distraction or a substitute for God, if they cause us to ignore or to forget the requirements of God, then our blessings like Solomon's will rise up to haunt us and will become a curse and not a blessing. In time, the Lord's complaint against Solomon was this. His heart was not true to his God as was the heart of his father David. I believe that the life and reign of Solomon confronts us with the question of life's priorities and its commitments. It is time, I think, for each of us to ask of ourselves with respect to our blessings, which are numerous. Have they, in fact, turned our hearts away from God? Have they become a distraction for us? Have they corroded our values or usurped our commitments? Have they become, in a sense, more of a curse than a blessing? No one here today can answer that for anyone else here today. But each of us ought to ask it of ourselves. Now you may well be thinking, well, certainly our blessings and benefits don't rival Solomon's in any way, shape, or form. I'm not so sure of that. I would argue with you about that. I know I've only been here for some nine months now. I'm still somewhat of an outsider. But I have become aware of things that you may likely take for granted or ignore about your blessings in this time and place. The region's terrain here, the landscapes, surpass anything that Solomon could have seen from Mount Zion, from his palace or from the temple. I just love the greenery of Greensboro, the majestic trees that are everywhere you go in town. And I can hardly wait for fall because I'm an autumn person and I can't wait to see all these hardwoods when Mother Nature has her autumn finery on. The landscape is beautiful. The climate is ideal. Unless you live at the coast as I do, you probably don't follow or track the storms too much. They don't have as much of an effect. But I can assure you, if you live on the coast, you're almost mesmerized by the weather channel. I wish I weren't. Traffic. That's one of the real blessings. If you come from a place like Charleston, you can drive just about anywhere you want here in Greensboro and get there within, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. I read in the paper yesterday that they've done a study of how much time people spend stuck in traffic. In Charlotte, the average was 58 hours or 57 hours a year stuck in traffic. That's more than two days just sitting in traffic. Since I've been in Greensboro, I've been stuck in traffic for about 20 minutes one time. So I've been given several extra days as most of us have. Greensboro has excellent schools, public and private, 
and people who are working hard, some of whom are in this congregation, to see that every child who graduates from high school here has some kind of opportunity for continued education. The economy here may not be as robust as it once was before the downturn in textiles and, and furniture, but it's still a stable economy and perhaps even a thriving one. I'm not as in touch economically with what's going on. Surely we have access to world-class health care. Solomon had nothing like that. You can see a doctor and most of us have insurance and benefits to have the care of a physician. On August 20th, the front page of the papers asked the question, how healthy are we? in Greensboro. And it was interesting to read that because uh, the death rate from a lot of chronic diseases like heart disease and lung cancer are declining. That's good. One concern is the still unacceptable rates of infant mortality and low birth weights and premature births. But for the most part, those statistics come from high poverty areas. And most of us don't live in those areas. 90% of the residents of Greensboro, I read, live very near to parks and recreation areas that contribute to good health and an enjoyable lifestyle. And yet there are some food deserts, as they're called, in the area, about 12 of them. High poverty areas, again, where people don't have easy access to good food or to rather inexpensive food. But here again, that's not where most of us live, is it? And the entertainment opportunities here in Greensboro amaze me. They're beyond anything that King Solomon or his subjects could have experienced. There are excellent stage productions and symphonies and concerts and museums, sports facilities, historical sites, festivals in abundance. Beats the heck out of watching apes cavort behind a fence somewhere. But if you want to do that, you just drive up to Ashboro. You can see that too. And wealth. No, we don't have the same kind of wealth as Solomon did. No one ever has. But we don't need to compare our wealth with the wealthiest man who's ever lived. What if we compare our wealth with the vast majority of people living on planet Earth? If we do that, we may realize that perhaps the poorest person here this morning is considered very wealthy by most of the world. And physical pleasure? I assume, I trust none of us has 700 wives and 300 concubines, but would that be a blessing or a curse? How do you remember all those anniversaries, (laughs) those birthdays? Who keeps up with all that? And they did prove to be a curse for Solomon because we read that they turned his heart away from God. Not so much them, but their gods. He began to worship the gods that his wives served and build places for them to offer their sacrifices. So we need to be encouraged never to forget to lose sight of not only the abundance we enjoy, the blessings we know, but the source of those blessings as well because it's easy to forget. Most of us in childhood learned that little song, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what God has done. If we took the time to count our blessings, that would occupy most of a day, I presume, for many of us. 
And beyond our personal and community blessings, just think about the blessings this church has enjoyed and still enjoys. An incredible, majestic facility which is functional and, I don't know, I've never worshipped in a sanctuary more beautiful than this one. Educational opportunities, if you want to grow in your faith, they're there. All you have to do is attend. Spiritual retreats to encourage you and inspire you, though most of them have been canceled in recent times. An excellent staff. A music ministry that is second to none. In every church I've been a part of, or 50 years I've been on church staffs now, but we've had some wonderful musicians and choristers, but nothing to compare with what we enjoy each and every week. Either in the, in the service next door or in this service. Wonderful, gifted people who enhance our worship of the living God. So blessed. Do we know how fortunate we are? What about our financial situation as a church? This might make Miles uh, Fish nervous when I say this, but I, I ask him, what, was the total, what is our total debt just a few weeks ago? It's $979,000. That sounds like a lot of money, and it is. But when you consider the budget, the annual budget of this church, nearly $4.5 million dollars, how concerned are you about that debt? I had a fundraiser tell me one time that a church shouldn't have a debt greater than three times its annual budget. I wouldn't try to sell that to a session anywhere. <laughs> but our debt is 20% of our annual budget. How many of you wish your own personal debt, your family debt, was just 20% of your annual budget, including your mortgage and your cars and everything else? You would consider yourself very, very fortunate Indeed. Of course, the point I'm making in all of this is that in our own time and place, we, the members of this congregation, are like Solomon, blessed beyond belief, with benefits we can't even count or imagine till we sit down and think about it. But is it possible that we too can take these blessings for granted? discount our blessings, forget their source, and in fact discover that they are a distraction from God's business. They are in fact a curse because we've begun to glory in the gift rather than the giver. And our hearts have been turned away as we overlook the presence, the will, and the work of God. We may have forgotten what a descendant of Solomon a thousand years later would say and teach that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his blessings and to whom much is given much will be required now you well know if you're a member of this congregation that we're going through a time of transition in the life of the church getting ready for a new season of life and work together starting this next Sunday getting ready to prepare the ground for the new leadership that will be called here before too very long. We have scheduled a revival for the end of September to challenge and encourage our people simply to look at their own lives, to renew their commitment to Christ and to his church, 
that's absolutely necessary. Not just if this church is to thrive, but even if it's to survive, we have to remember the commitments we have made. Do you really love this church? How is it reflected in your living, your giving, your lifestyle? Because the opposite of love is not hate. No one hates the church, even people that have drifted away from active membership. They didn't hate the church. The opposite of love is apathy. You just stop caring anymore or stop realizing its importance. Far too many church members, not only here but throughout America, far too many would-be disciples take for granted all the blessings that we enjoy. And as a result... Our spiritual privileges are simply considered options out there if we want them. Our involvement in the life and worship of the church is really more a matter of convenience than it is joyful commitment, born of love and gratitude. Right now I'm reading an intriguing book. The staff is probably getting tired of me mentioning this book, but I can't, I can't put it down. It's by David Brooks called the second mountain and he's talking about a lot of these things that have come up just now but he's talking about commitment and how there are at least four transformational commitments we make in our lives one is your vocation whatever you choose to do or pursue that's going to radically change who you are marriage is a second commitment whoever you marry is going to change your life your community, your involvement and investment in your community is a commitment you have to make. And if you do that, if you take your work outside the walls of these, this church seriously, your life's going to be transformed. And lastly, your faith or your philosophy of life, that's going to transform you too. Or it should if it's a genuine faith because it will, it will impact what you do with your life and who you marry and how you serve. I was thinking of this because one of the things he argues is that for many of these transformational commitments, we need to re-up. We need to recommit to them from time to time. You know, marriage grows stale and it needs a shot in the arm. You start taking each other for granted. Your vocation can become dull and routine and it too needs a retooling of your skills and interest and passion. Your commitment to the community may wane over the years. And your commitment to Jesus Christ and his church may wane as well. And so, he says it's very important for us to make recommitments. And that's one of the things we're hoping for in this revival. Not just so that people outside the church might hear and respond to the gospel in some way. And maybe want to join us in our worship and work here. But so with our very members who have become rather lackadaisical and lethargic. Will renew their commitment to what God has provided for us here. Brooks quotes in his book a Unitarian minister from New York City by the name of Galen Gungerich, and he writes this We need to learn the virtue of staying put and staying true, of choosing again what we chose before. In my view, that's one of the main reasons people come to church. We are not here so much to make spiritual progress each week, although that's wonderful when it happens. Rather, we mostly come for consistency. For what remains the same from week to week, the comfort of the liturgy, the solace of the music, 
the reassuring sight of familiar and friendly faces, the enduring presence of ancient rites and timeless symbols. We are here to remind ourselves of values that unite us and commitments that keep us heading in the right direction. We are here to choose again what we chose before. If you united with this church, you made a commitment to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You also made a commitment to be a faithful member of this congregation. Let us in the coming weeks and months and years continually recommit to that because it will change our lives and the life of the world around us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.